Scripture reading this afternoon is from Isaiah 63, where we'll read verses 7 through 14. So we consider the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This is one of those Old Testament passages that reminds us the Spirit did not just all of a sudden begin at Pentecost, but was active already in the Old Testament, dwelling with and leading his people. Isaiah 63, I think it's on page 739 in the Pew Bibles, we'll begin reading at verse 7. It says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, that he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Read that in connection with Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 880. In the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal, question 53, the work, person and work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll read responsively. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that he is given also to me so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. And you can also turn back to page 858 as we'll read with that article 11 of the Belgic Confession. Article 11 on the deity of the Holy Spirit will read this together also. We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeding from the two of them. In regard to order, he is the third person of the Trinity of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. 
He is true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. Congregation, when we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're confessing what the church always has, that God is one and God is three. He is three in one, three distinct persons, yet one true eternal God. And in that passage that we read a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 63, we actually see that very thing. Where verse 8 speaks of the Father who calls us his children. Verse 9 speaks of the angel of his presence who who saves his people. That's a reference to the angel of the Lord. The Old Testament is is, uh, referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. And then in verse 10, it speaks of the Holy Spirit who is grieved as God's people rebel against him. One God in three persons. One old commentator says, we have here in Isaiah 63 an unmistakable indication of the mystery of the triune God. Or uh, Isaiah scholar Alec Bater says, the the New Testament does not, so to speak, multiply the, the one God from the Old Testament by three, but reveals what was already there. God revealed in the Old Testament is the Trinity incognito. Isaiah 63 teaches us the doctrine of the one holy, undivided Trinity. And in the verses that we read, especially verses 10 through 14, the focus is on the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that we just confessed from the Belgic Confession, who in this passage is is revealed to us as a distinct person, is revealed to us as a divine person, and is revealed to us as the one who mediates to us the blessings of salvation. So this afternoon, as we consider the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 63, I want to think first about the person of the Holy Spirit. It's revealed both here in Isaiah 63, but also throughout the rest of Scripture, and then the work of the Holy Spirit, who according to this passage redeems us, dwells with us, leads us, and eventually gives us rest. Let's look at me first at the, uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. First thing that we see here is that he is a distinct person. In other words, he's, he's more than just a, a, a supernatural force, but is a, a distinct person. We see this in two ways in our passage. Uh, first, in that he is able to be grieved. And then second, in that specific actions are applied to him or ascribed to him. And it's verse 10, where it says that the Holy Spirit is the one against whom God's people rebel, who is grieved by their sin. This underscores for us the fact that he is more than just an impersonal force, but is a person. That the language of grieving someone is interpersonal language. It it means that the Holy Spirit is more than just the the power of God, but is one of the persons of the Godhead, who is here sinned against and is said to be grieved. It's a little bit like in Acts chapter 5. You might remember when uh, Peter uh, confronts Ananias and says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit implying that the Holy Spirit is not an indistinct expression of the impersonal power of God, but a distinct person 
who can be lied to, who can be grieved. We also see in the way that um, specific actions are ascribed to him, whether it be in in, uh, verses 10, 11, uh, turning against and, and fighting them, whether it be leading them and giving them rest in verse 14, it's, it's the spirit who is dividing the waters and leading them through the depths in verses 12 and 13. The way that these specific actions are applied to the Holy Spirit as subject implies that he is a distinct person. And again, we see more of this elsewhere in Scripture. In Luke chapter 12, um, the Holy Spirit is said to teach Christ's disciples what they ought to speak. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, The Holy Spirit is interceding for us in prayer when we are so weak that we do not know what to pray. And in the first couple of verses of Acts chapter 13, as Paul is being sent out on that first missionary journey, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church at Antioch. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person to whom actions, and here in this passage, feelings are ascribed. He is no impersonal force, but is a distinct person. And yet we don't only see that he's a distinct person, but we also see that he's a divine person. It is, in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord who gives them rest. In other words, the divine spirit. In fact, at times throughout this passage, the activity of of the spirit and the activity of God in general are, are difficult for us to distinguish. Verses 10 and 11, it's, it's not clear exactly who it is that is remembering the days of old and turning to be their enemy, whether that's God or whether that's the Spirit, because the Spirit is God. The actions of the Holy Spirit and the actions of God in general become somewhat blurred because the Spirit is God. We can look at verse 8, where God becomes their Savior, but verse 10, when they rebel, they're said to rebel against the Spirit. The two are spoken of interchangeably because the two are one. I mentioned a moment ago, Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. We we see this uh, same uh, dynamic there as well. When Ananias lies to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5 verse 3, Peter then says in the very next verse, you have lied to God. The Holy Spirit is not always distinguished from God because the Spirit is God a distinct person from the Father and the Son, yet all of them one true eternal God, co-equal and co-eternal. And so we're to see here in Isaiah 63, distinctness yet inseparability. We're to see personality yet also divinity. As we confess in the Belgian Confession, the Holy Spirit is of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son. As it's worded in Lord's Day 20, with the Father and the Son is eternal God. All of this we see in Isaiah 63, the Trinity incognito. Just as the Spirit is placed on the same level as the Father and the Son in that baptismal formula in Matthew 28, or in that Trinitarian benediction that we'll hear later from 2 Corinthians 13, so here we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as God. And the implication of this is that if he is God, then he is to be worshipped and thanked with the Father and the Son for his work in redemption. He is to be praised as co-equal and co-eternal true God. 
So we confess in the Athanasian Creed that he is to be worshipped together with the Father and the Son. And even to be specifically praised, as we did in our song of preparation, and as we will again after the sermon, where we sing of the glorious work of God the Spirit distinctly, who is worthy of our praise. Another implication is not just that the Spirit is to be worshipped and glorified, but also that it's possible to, to specifically sin against him, as we see in verse 10, where they grieve the Spirit. As we think about the distinct personality of the Spirit, we also need to think about how not to grieve him. And Paul actually quotes this in Ephesians chapter 4, where after he tells the Ephesian church to put away all falsehood, anger, theft, and corrupting talk, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So apparently when the Spirit is in them and among them, but they act not according to their status as new creatures in Christ, but sin, it grieves the Lord. You see the same idea in Isaiah. The Spirit is in their midst. He's, he's dwelling with them as their Redeemer. But when they rebel, when they intermarry with Moabites, or when they worship golden calves, when they complain against God and the leaders that he's placed over them time and again, they are not acting according to their new redeemed status, but are grieving the Spirit who is with them and among them. What Paul does in Ephesians 4 is he takes this example from Isaiah 63 as a warning to us not to do the same, not to grieve the Spirit with whom we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Pastor Ian Hamilton says the Holy Spirit indwells believers as their helper and sanctifier, working constantly to make us more like God in true righteousness and holiness. But when we do not behave like God, not only do we provoke his fatherly displeasure, but we actually grieve him. The Holy Spirit is no uh, mere influence or power. He is personal and capable of being grieved. In Ephesians, we do that when we use our mouths ungraciously and uncharitably. In Isaiah, we we do it when we complain against God and fail to trust him. We do it when we worship other idols or yoke ourselves to unbelievers. We do it when we rebel and grumble against the leaders that God places over us. Those are the, the ways that they grieve the spirit in the wilderness. They fail to trust the Lord and rebel against him and Rebel, Isaiah says, against his spirit. And we are not to grieve, but instead to give thanks and praise for all that he's done. That's what we want to think about next as we think about the, the work of the Holy Spirit who applies to us the blessings of salvation. On Lord's Day 20, we're reminded of several reasons why we're to be thankful for the work of God's spirit. It says that he has given to us, uh, given to us personally, that he makes us share in Christ and all of his benefits, every, every blessing. You think of a passage like Psalm 103 or Isaiah 1 where it lists all of those blessings that we are to recount. All of those are applied to us by Christ's Spirit. Isaiah 20 says he comforts us. Jesus calls him the comforter. And it says that he remains with us forever. Isaiah 20 is just beginning to scratch the surface of the work of God's Spirit in us and for us. We also see in Isaiah 63, 
So I want to think about a couple different aspects of the Spirit's work here to help us grow in appreciation for the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The first thing I want to uh, point out is that the Spirit is working already here in the Old Testament. So this already, but it's, it's important for us to wrap our minds around this. He doesn't just appear at Pentecost, but he is present and already at work here in the Exodus. In fact, already at creation. The first two verses of the Bible, it is the Spirit of God who is hovering over the waters to bring order. He is present throughout the Old Testament. And here in Isaiah 63 is said to be the one who executes God's glorious work of redemption in the Exodus. We're starting in verse 7. It, it, it recounts God's steadfast love and compassion toward his people and says in verse 8 that he became their savior. We see in verses 10 to 14 that what it's talking about is the Exodus. But it's interesting to note how much of of that work in the Exodus is attributed to the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, right after the the Holy Spirit is is introduced at the end of verse 11, you have that series of, of clauses where it is the Spirit as subject who empowers the right hand of Moses to work miracles. Think of all those miracles, boys and girls, that Moses did in the presence of Pharaoh. Those are empowered by the Spirit of God, Isaiah 63 says. It is by the Spirit that that the waters are divided to make for God an everlasting name. It is the Spirit who leads them, verse 13, through the depths so that they do not stumble. Verse 14, who leads God's people and gives them rest on the other side of their wandering. St. Clair Ferguson says the Spirit is the executive of the Exodus redemption wrought by God the Savior. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in the accomplishment of of redemption. The accomplishment of that great Old Testament act of redemption. You think of how so often in the Psalms, this is true also in Isaiah, that the the defining redemptive work of God in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And Isaiah tells us that we should expect another Exodus to come when Jesus Christ the Messiah comes, and that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. Whereas Christ comes to bring about that greater redemptive act, that greater exodus, the Holy Spirit, too, is instrumental in that exodus to which this one points. I think is why this song that we sang is our song of preparation is so helpful. It sings about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in um, every aspect of, of the accomplishment of redemption through Christ. John Owen once said something to the effect of, of there is not one uh, work that Christ accomplishes for us in, humani- in his humanity that is not uh, wrought for us by the power of the Spirit. That is, is precisely what we just sang when that first stanza. It speaks of the Holy Spirit who came upon the Virgin Mary, Luke chapter 1, so that Christ would be conceived in the womb. The Holy Spirit who filled Christ as a child with wisdom and strength as he grew up in Nazareth, Luke chapter 2. In Luke 3, the Holy Spirit anoints Christ at his baptism, empowering him for ministry. In Luke 4, he leads him into the wilderness and strengthens him to fight our foe with the same word that the Spirit inspired. Christ's whole earthly ministry is by the power of the Spirit. 
the miracles that he does, the demons that he casts out, even his offering himself on the cross. Hebrews 9.14 says he did through the eternal spirit. As we sang, by the Holy Spirit's power, offered up his precious blood. Every aspect of the redemption that Christ accomplished for us was by the Spirit. Remember a few weeks ago when he considered the resurrection, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, says that he was raised up by the Spirit of holiness. Even in his ascension, I think we see the role of the Spirit. As you look here at Isaiah chapter 63, it says that um, the Spirit was, was uh, in, in the midst of them, In their journey in the wilderness, I take that as a reference to the glory cloud by which he leads them, which interestingly comes up at several significant points in Christ's life and ministry. You think of that that glory cloud that overshadows the Mount of Transfiguration. I think we see there in Matthew 17 a Trinitarian reference where the Father speaks to the Son and says, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And just as the Spirit anointed Christ at his baptism, so the Spirit in the glory cloud is there present at the transfiguration. But as we we trace that cloud theme throughout the New Testament, it is the cloud that brings Jesus into the presence of his Father at the ascension. Based upon Isaiah 63, I take that to be this same glory cloud from the the, the wilderness, which is a reference to the Spirit. The same glory cloud that Jesus says will usher him back on that final day. The same Holy Spirit is everywhere present for the accomplishment of redemption. Yet he is not only present at every aspect of the accomplishment of redemption... But he's also everywhere present in in every aspect of the application of redemption. Where at Pentecost, the ascended Christ pours out his spirit so that we are joined to him, Lord's Day 20, made to share in Christ and all his benefits. Even sealed with his spirit until the day of redemption. And until then, being led by the spirit who dwells with his people. We see already his his leading, guiding, and dwelling with his people in Isaiah 63 in a way that anticipates the greater leading, guiding, and indwelling of the Spirit in the New Testament. Verse 11, the the Holy Trinity is put, or the the Holy Spirit rather, is, is put in the midst of them to dwell among God's people. Just as the Spirit in Isaiah 63, 11 dwells among his people, so he does now corporately in the church as we gather together, even individually as he dwells not just among us, but within us. And as he does, verse 14, he leads us, not just by a glory cloud that hovers over us, but by his word, which he inspires by our conscience, which he calibrates, by our church, which he indwells and gifts others for service to help us and and lead us, sharpen us and teach us. The Holy Spirit still is leading and guiding his people. And Lord's Day 20 will remain with us forever until he ushers us into that final rest of which verse 14 speaks proleptically in the promised land of the heavenly Canaan. Isaiah 63 says that the spirit who dwelt with them and led them eventually brought them through their wilderness wandering into the promised land of rest. So we see there in the middle of verse 14, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. 
Remember, the book of Hebrews says that that rest which they experienced in the promised land is a type and shadow of our heavenly rest in that heavenly Canaan. And again, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us all the way there, accomplishing our redemption and anointing Christ for service, empowering him all the way to the cross, raising him up and ushering him into the presence of the Ancient of Days on that glory cloud to heaven, applying that redemption to us as he regenerates us, as he unites us to Christ and makes us share in all his benefits, as he indwells us, as he comforts us with the good news of the gospel which he applies to our hearts and leading us eventually into that heavenly rest, supporting us every step of the way there by his word. See, the glorious work of God's Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son redeems us, who applies that redemption to us, uniting us to Christ, who we share in all his benefits, who comforts us and remains with us forever, where even in glory he will continue to teach us more and more about the inexhaustible riches of the gospel. He will continue to be that personal bond who unites us in fellowship and will continue to minister to us the presence of God the Father and God the Son forever. Lord's Day 20 is seeking to move us to gratitude for the work of God the Spirit. Isaiah 63 is seeking to help us to have a broader understanding of the work of the Spirit, beginning already in the Old Testament, stretching from the accomplishment of redemption all the way to the final application of it, and including not just his individual and private work in our heart, but also his corporate work among us and his cosmic work in being the creator and recreator who ushers in that final rest. Do you see the work of God's Spirit this afternoon? And do you see how it's actually not true when people say that unless you are a charismatic who believes in the continuation of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, then then you somehow don't believe in the third person of the Trinity? No, the the work that he does is so much more than that. And so being a a Spirit-filled church is not about speaking in tongues and and dancing in the aisles of the pews, but rejoicing in the vastness of the Spirit's work on our behalf, understanding the history of redemption and all that he's done, giving glory to Christ, whom he empowered for service, and John 16, whom he is sent to glorify. Because Spirit-filled church is about attending to his word by which he leads and guides us the word that he inspired, the word that he preserved for his church, the word that he gifts men to teach, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and the word that he illumines for us as we gather together around it each Lord's Day. It's somewhat ironic that in so many of the churches that claim to be spirit-filled churches, so little of the word of God is read. So little of the word of God is sung. Being a spirit-filled church means being a a word-centered and Christ-exalting church. I would suggest uh, being a spirit-filled church means also being a a psalm-singing church. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The very next line says, singing psalms. 
Sinclair Ferguson says, you hear all sorts of people talking about wanting to be a spirit-filled church, a charismatic church. He says, according to Ephesians 5, the best way to be a spirit-filled church is to sing the Psalms. You need to be word-centered and Christ-exalting. Kevin Young said, a spirit-led worship has at its heart not any motive experience, nor a spontaneous feel but rather a Christ-exalting, cross-centered, word-focused event where the name of Jesus is praised and the power of the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Another Reformed theologian, Scott Swain, the best way to honor the Spirit is to study His person and work as revealed in His Word, to enter into fellowship with Him through the means that He's appointed, the ministry of word and sacrament, prayer, and other uh, divinely ordained acts of public and, and private worship like the Psalms, by which the Spirit directs us to the glory of the gospel. That's what Lord's Day 20 is, is seeking to help us understand that the Spirit does. The work of the Holy Spirit is not just about the, the miraculous and the, um, the, the outwardly spectacular, but about the profoundly ordinary. And so if we would respond to God's word, as we've heard it this afternoon, if we would be Trinitarian Christians, then we are to study God's work in the unfolding plan of redemption. The work of each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are to give thanks for each and, and praise the, the Father, Spirit, and Son, especially this afternoon, the Spirit, and seek not to grieve Him by failing to live in conformity to our new nature or in gratitude for what He's done, but devoting ourselves to His leading and guiding through the word that He gives until we enter into that final rest, which he will bring us to, where together with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we will sin no more. We will dwell in his presence, verse 14, exalting his glorious name forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of your Spirit and praise him for empowering Christ to accomplish our redemption, for applying that redemption as he regenerates, indwells, sanctifies, and leads us by his word. I pray that you would help us always to be mindful of all that he does, making us by true faith to share in Christ and all his benefits, comforting us and remaining with us forever. I pray even that he would grant that true faith of which Lord's Day 20 speaks to any gathered here who do not have it, who do not know Christ, that the Spirit would glorify him by directing their eyes to see his sacrifice on the cross, his victory over the grave, his ascension, and his coming again to judge the living and the dead. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done. Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, help us to be a grateful people. We pray that you would help us to be a word-centered and Christ-exalting people, for in that we glorify the Spirit. We pray that you would help us not to grieve the Spirit by allowing indwelling sin to remain in us, either individually or corporately. Pray that you'd help us to be a people who hate ungodly speech, 
rebellious attitudes, sinful grumbling, ungodly looks and thoughts, but would help us instead to honor your spirit by putting to death these things that so grieve him. We pray that you would help us to be people who are ever devoted to the word which your spirit gifts to his church. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by his spirit.